Well, welcome to the Theological Equipping class. If you were with us last semester, great to see you back. You've come back for some more punishment, just gluttons for punishment. And then if you are visiting, we're glad to have you here. Uh, The Theological Equipping class is a way to kind of grow deeper, even before our sermon, where we're able to delve down into particular biblical topics uh, in a little bit more detail than we're able to do typically in a sermon. So we're really glad that you're here. Uh, We're going to be doing this until July. So we'll be meeting every Sunday morning at 9 o'clock in here until July, which then we'll take a break and then we'll come back right after. After that. So every December and July here at the church, we take a break from extracurricular activities so you get a chance to rest and be with family and these kind of things. And so really, really excited about what we're going to be studying today. Uh, we're going to meet in here at 9 o'clock uh, every Sunday morning in this room right here. Uh, we're going to go until 10 o'clock, and then we're going to have questions from 10 until 10.10, all right? So there's a lot of the, word, a lot of the number 10 in there. Let me, so let me go over that again. We'll meet at 9. We'll end at 10. From 10 to 10.10, we will have so 10 minutes of Q&A. What we're trying to do is get you out of here by 10.10 so that you have a few minutes to get actually into the sanctuary for the service. That way you can run to the restroom and say hi to your kids, whatever it may be. And so keep that in mind. That'll be kind of the format. Uh, and uh, we are going to be also going a little bit slower than we did for the last semester. Now, we're not going to be watering down the content. The content's going to be very high, but we realized we had to to try to crunch some pretty big theological things into just a few weeks last semester. And so, you know, to just spend one, you know, Sunday on eschatology or one Sunday on the Trinity or something, that was really fast. So we're going to still have the same deep content, but we're going to slow it down a little bit. That way, it's just not like trying to drink from a fire hydrant. And so uh, we think that should be a lot of fun. We're going to be studying two different things uh, this semester. I'm going to talk about those in just a second, but let me read you a quote. This was on the syllabus that we handed out uh, a couple weeks ago in the... uh Uh, in the sanctuary. But this is a quote from Martin Luther, and this is really kind of our hope uh, for this course for you. So here's what it is. I just want to read this. Just if you don't have this with you, that's okay. Just listen to me read it. He says this about the Bible. He says, these are the scriptures which make fools of all the wise and understanding and are open only to the small and simple, as Christ says. Therefore, dismiss your own opinions and feelings and think of the scriptures as the loftiest and noble of holy things as the richest of minds which can never be sufficiently explored in order that you may find divine wisdom which God here lays before you in such simple guise as to quench all pride. Here you will find the swaddling clothes and the manger in which Christ lies. So that's really our hope for you. Our hope is that in studying the Scriptures, one, it would put to death our feelings and our opinions, which have a tendency to scream a lot louder than God's Word, although they're a heck of a lot less true. Uh, and also, and this last part's really essential, that you would love God more by knowing His Word more. So we're not just abstractly studying a book. We're studying God's Word so that we can love God Himself, that we can't separate these two things. So that's our hope. Everybody good so far? Everybody awake? We have coffee out there if you need it. Okay. Two different topics that we're going to be going over. Some big uh, $10 words here that you can use to impress your friends. The first one is bibliology. All right? Bibliology. Bibliology is the study of Scripture. Okay? If you're wondering what that is, bibliology is the study of Scripture. It's the study of the book. The Greek word biblos means book, all right? So bibliology is the doctrine of Scripture. It is the study of the book. Uh, biblos is book. In fact, the Latinized word Bible means book. If you've ever wondered why we call it the Bible, well, that's just a Latinized word that means book. That's why some of them are called the Holy Bible, because it's the Holy Book. It's a book, but it's a special book, because it's God's book, all right? So this is bibliology. And as we're studying bibliology, we're going to talk about the Bible. We're going to talk about things like what books belong in the Bible. 
Have you ever been watching like a History Channel or Discovery Channel special and there's like a Gospel of Judas and a Gospel of Mary Magdalene and there's all these kind of things? Why do we have the books that we have in the Bible and not these other books? We're going to talk about where we got the Bible because we all agree that the Bible didn't just fall from the sky with like gold edge pages in leather with maps, all right? So where did we get the Bible? We're going to talk about the inerrancy of Scripture, things like why are there seeming, and notice that I said seeming, seeming contradictions in the Bible. What do we do with those? Does God's Word have any error? Why or why not? How can we know? We're going to talk about what the Bible is written for, uh, if you'll allow me to end with a preposition. What is the purpose of God's Word? Is it sufficient? If so, sufficient for what? We're going to talk about textual criticism. Oh, what is that? That sounds scary and awful and very sciencey. Textual criticism is we have thousands and thousands and thousands of manuscripts. How do we know what the original reading would have been of the Bible? We're going to be talking about that. Jeff's going to be talking about that. We're going to talk about the Bible in history. So we're going to talk about the history of the English Bible. We're going to talk about uh, how the Bible was viewed in the Reformation and in the Middle Ages. Uh, we're going to talk about translations of the Bible. There are a bajillion translations. Why are there so many translations of the Bible? We're going to be talking about that in our study of bibliology. But that's what we're going to be covering in the first half of this spring. We're going to be covering the doctrine of Scripture known as bibliology. Everybody good on that? Okay. The next thing we're going to do is we're going to study, and here's just a fancy, again, a fancy word here, but it's, it's not scary. We're going to decode it. We're going to interpret it, if you will. Uh, this is a term. This is pronounced hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. Okay. What is hermeneutics? All hermeneutics is, is how to correctly interpret the Bible, okay? Hermeneutics is actually the study or the science of interpretation. So we're going to talk about how to interpret the Bible. My whole life, I've had pastors get up and say, read the Bible, read the Bible, read the Bible, but none of them ever sat down with me to say, this is how you read the Bible. How do you get a correct interpretation? Hopefully you don't read Revelation like you read Psalms, like you read Matthew, because those are different genres. And how do I know what Paul means here? Well, you can look what he means elsewhere, and there's all these tools and tricks that you can use to get a correct interpretation of the Bible. So we're going to learn what the Bible is, and then we're going to learn how to interpret it correctly. Uh, hermeneutics, why is it called that? It comes from the Greek word hermeneuo, all right? Hermeneuo, which means to interpret, or I interpret, Okay. That's where the word hermeneutics comes from. By the way, what is the name of the Greek god that has the little winged shoes and flies around giving messages? Who knows? Yes. Hermes. Tucker, well done. Hermes is correct. His name is linked to Hermeneuo. Hermes, he's the interpreter or the messenger of the gods, if you will. And so that's what we're going to be doing with hermeneutics. So bibliology, we're going to learn the doctrine of Scripture. With hermeneutics, we're going to learn how to correctly interpret it. Things like that, we're going to talk about who determines meaning. Is it the author? Is it the reader? Is it the text? Is it some sort of interplay between those? We're going to hear about certain mistakes in interpreting the Bible that are made all the time, all right, all the time. And so we're going to avoid some of these landmines that it's very easy to step on by our study of Bible interpretation. So we're going to be spending until July basically studying God's Word and how to interpret it correctly. What do we mean by that? Why is there one Bible in a billion interpretations? We're going to go over those things. Sound good? Okay. You guys shake your head to make me feel like you don't hate this. Okay. Let's today, though, introduce this topic. So next week, Jeff is going to come in, and he's going to teach, uh, give a basic introduction to the Bible. What languages is it written in? How come the books are arranged the way they are? Give a, a brief history of that. So that should be a lot of fun. Today, though, I want to talk, something, uh, talk about something a little more generic and a little bit bigger, which is simply, what is the Word of God? What is God's Word? Okay. I want to start, though, <clears throat> with a passage actually out of Matthew. I don't think this is in your handout, so just hear me read this. 
It's where Jesus asks, who do people say that I am, right? And there's a bunch of weird answers. Oh, maybe you're Elijah reincarnate, or maybe you're just a prophet, or maybe you're this, and they have all these bunch of answers, and then Peter gives the correct answer. But Jesus says something after that that is fascinating. Here's what I want you to, to pay attention to is this last part. Let me read it. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Yes and amen. Typically when I've heard this taught, though, that's where the passage stops. But there's one more verse here, and here's what he says. Jesus Jesus says this, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God is a God who reveals himself, and he must reveal himself. You actually see this passage, in a sense, linked to election, that God has to open people's minds so they understand. When Peter gives the correct answer, you're the Christ, you're the son of David, you're the son of God, Jesus doesn't say, man, you are so much smarter than everybody else. You are so intelligent. Thank you for being a very, very smart fisherman in the first century. He says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. This had to be revealed to you. My father revealed this to you. We worship a God who reveals himself, okay? And we are dependent on him revealing himself. This is something you need to know about God and about God's love. There are a lot of religions out there, and especially in the Old Testament, where uh, people don't really know who God or the gods are. I mean, if you think of something like Hinduism today, they have millions of gods, and how do they make their gods happy? They're not really sure. Maybe the gods want this, maybe the gods want that. Or if you think in Greek mythology, in Greek mythology, the gods are always tricking one another and seducing one another. They're just like bad people on steroids or something, all right? So they're just evil and they're twisted and they do all these kind of things and you don't really know how to make the gods happy. Maybe you win a war, maybe you sack Troy and you have to offer a bunch of bulls or something so the gods don't get mad. It's just confusing. In the Old Testament, you see the Canaanite pagan nations trying to please their gods, but they don't know how. It's not raining. Maybe we've done something to make the gods mad. Maybe we should sacrifice a child to show them how much we love them, and then they'll bring the rain. Or the crops aren't growing, so maybe we need to have prostitution and fertility cults and all this kind of pagan practices to get the gods to bless our crops. This is what's going on with the pagan Canaanite nations. They worship gods that have not revealed themselves. And so one of the great things you need to know about Yahweh is that he loves us enough to reveal who he is, and we are dependent on him doing so. He reveals. He says, you're not going to have to guess about me. You're not going to have to just speculate about me. You're not just going to have to do all this worldly philosophy. I'm going to tell you who I am. I'm going to show up in history. I'm going to give you my word. I'm going to send Christ. I'm going to reveal myself so that you might know me rightly. And that is a mark of God's overwhelming grace towards us. He could have left us in the dark where we're not really sure who he is or what he's doing or what he wants. But instead, he's told us in black and white because he loves us. Now, what is the Word of God, okay? We're going to get more into the Bible specifically next week, but I want to talk generically about the Word of God. So let me give you just a brief definition of what it means when I'm in this this class today saying the Word of God. Here's what it means. It's God revealing himself. That's simply what I mean. God revealing himself. The Word of God is where God reveals himself. It is how God speaks to us. That's what I mean by the Word of God. 
okay? Now, there are different forms of the Word of God. We're going to talk the most about the Bible because that contains all these other forms, but I want to give you some biblical passages that show different ways that God has revealed himself, okay? So here's the first one, A. And by the way, I switch between saying one in A and it's small A. Just ignore all that. Just know that I'm on to the next point, okay? So I will mess that up throughout the entire semester, and I apologize. And so if it's confusing because I'm like one, B, C, four. If that gets confusing, that's confused. That's just what I do. I'm just broken, and I can't keep letters and numbers straight. Don't blame me. Blame algebra, where they decided just to combine them, all right? That's not my fault. They started throwing in letters with my math. Okay, A. Sometimes God reveals himself through nature in a more generic sense. Let me give you some passages. Romans 1, 19 through 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, he's talking about pagans, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. What Paul is saying essentially in Romans 1 is there's no such thing really as an atheist. Because everybody can look around and realize that no effect is its own cause and that there is something here and that there is some sort of creator and we have rebelled and sinned against that creator. That's his argument in Romans 1. And so what he's saying is there's a sense in which you can know certain things about God from nature. Now, not everything. You can't know, you can't just like look at a mountain and be like, I bet the God of the universe is Trinitarian and sent his son to die for my sins. You don't do that. But you look at a mountain and you say, I bet whoever made that mountain is strong and powerful. That's true. That's true. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So God has, in a small sense, revealed certain things about himself in nature. The Bible does teach that. Not enough to be saved, or as I've had one professor say, there's enough knowledge of God in creation to damn you, but not enough to save you, all right? That you can look around and know that you've sinned against God and know that there's a creator, but there's not enough knowledge of God in creation to save you. You need God's written word for that or preached word for that. But there is something you can know about God from nature. So here's my encouragement to you. Don't be blind to that. This next day as the snow falls, or at least in Texas, kind of a muddy ice sleet combination, or as you see a beautiful sunset, or as you see trees swaying in the wind, or as you see the stars, that's meant to proclaim the glory and majesty and wonder of God. When you see little kids run down the hall and they're laughing, that's meant to show the joy and the love and the grace and the peace of God. I think we have a tendency to miss this. There are times where I'm sitting in traffic, and when I'm in traffic, that's when I'm least a Christian. And as I'm driving home in traffic and I'm frustrated, there are times where the sun is going down and I see this sunset. And though I'm upset and I'm anxious and I'm frustrated and I'm in traffic, I can stop for a second and look at the sunset and say, God's not anxious. God's not worried. God's not late. God's not rushed. He takes time each day to paint a sunset for his glory and for our joy. So don't pass over that. It was actually walking in nature where the great uh, theologian Jonathan Edwards was converted. He had heard the gospel many times. It was walking and looking at the trees and the flowers and these kind of things where he finally realized, God must love me because he spent so much time clothing these flowers and these trees. And he wept for an hour and was converted, all right? So don't miss what God is trying to tell you and the beautiful things that he's created. Now, there's also evil things in the world, not created by God, but because sin has broken the world and the world has become twisted and these kind of things. But you still see these glimpses of God's glory as you look at the stars, as you watch a thunderstorm, these kind of things. God has revealed himself. The heavens declare the glory of God. Number two, slash B, slash II in Roman numerals. Sometimes God reveals himself directly without an intermediary, all right? 
Exodus 31, 18, and he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets uh, of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So in the case of things like the Ten Commandments, you, you don't have Moses just up there with his chisel and his hammer trying to figure this out and then cracking the stone or something. You have God saying, here, I've given you my word. I've written this. I've engraved these stones myself. Here it is. And you see God giving his word directly, directly in things like the Ten Commandments. Most of the time, though, as God gives his word, as God reveals himself, he uses some type of intermediary, some type of prophet, some type of apostle, some type of writer. So see, sometimes the way that God reveals himself is through a prophet's speech, is through a prophet's speech. Let me read a few passages that talk about this. Jeremiah 1.9, then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Jeremiah is saying, when I'm talking, I'm not just giving you my cool opinion. I'm not just giving you what I want to tweet about or something on Twitter. These are God's words, all right? These are God's very words. Deuteronomy 18, 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. That's what Jesus says that he's doing, that he has come only to do what the Father has sent him. Right? Not his own will, but what the Father's will is. Prophets usually say a certain phrase before they prophesy. What is that phrase? Yes, thus saith the Lord. All right? What I'm about to say, I'm not just saying the Lord has saith. And if the prophet is wrong or false or evil or it doesn't come true, he gets killed. All right? He is speaking the very words of God. So sometimes when God reveals himself, we see certain things about him in nature. Sometimes when God reveals himself, he gives it directly, like when he gives these Ten Commandments and these tablets of stone to Moses. Sometimes when God reveals himself, he does so through in the prophet's speech. But he also does, through, does so through the writings of the prophets or the writings of the apostles. Okay, Not just what's said, but what's written down as God supervenes and watches over that process. Let me give you some examples. 1 Corinthians 14.37. This is Paul. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Paul in 1 Corinthians are giving all these commands. He's talking about spiritual gifts in worship. He's talking about sexual immorality. He's talking about uh, men and women and their roles in the church. He's talking about the resurrection. He's talking about all these kind of things. And at the end, he's saying, this is not merely my opinion. These are God's command. I've heard people try to separate those out, and they'll say something like, well, Paul never says this about this, but Jesus does, as if you want to put Paul and Jesus into a cage match with each other. You don't. The same Holy Spirit is inspiring both of them as they're speaking, all right? And so when Paul's writing in his role as an apostle, not just if he writes, you know, grocery receipts or something like that, but in his role as an apostle, he's speaking the very words of God. To disbelieve or disobey the Bible, to disbelieve or disobey Paul, to disbelieve or disobey Peter, to disbelieve or disobey Moses and their writings is to disbelieve or disobey God himself. Second Peter 3.16. Now, this is where Peter is talking about false teachers, and he's going to talk about Paul's writings as being true but difficult to understand. So if you've ever read part of the New Testament, you're like, man, what does that mean? That is difficult to understand. You know who agrees with you? Peter, all right? So here's what Peter says. Second Peter 3.16. As he does in all his letters, talking about Paul, when he speaks of them in these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Amen. I'm not the only one. All right? Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Look at this last verse. As they do the other scriptures. So not only do you have Paul's letters here being called scripture, using the Old Testament word for scripture, graphe, 
But you have this idea that when Paul's writing these letters, it's the same authority as when prophets in the Old Testament are writing. So Romans or Galatians or 1 Corinthians is on the same level as a Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, okay? Or the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, these kind of guys. Sometimes you have God speaking through a decree, okay? Through a decree. Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, all right? That's amazing. God is not here simply describing something. He's not saying, oh, I see that there is light here. He is calling light into existence. He's saying, hey, light, be, and light is. That God is revealing himself through his spoken word, through his word he is creating. And by the way, with God's creative word, you see this Trinitarian aspect. You have the Father creating through his word, and you see the Spirit in Genesis hovering over the waters. You see this Trinitarian creation. That's kind of what's going on. Meaning, not the Trinity is created. The Trinity is eternal. The Trinity is creating everything that's going on. That God's, It's almost as if God speaks through his word and he's breathing out. That's kind of the idea is that you have Father, Word, and Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit there in God's creative act, that God is sometimes speaking through a decree. Sometimes... You see God's word. You see God revealing himself as he talks directly to somebody. All right, I'll give you an example, like when he talks to uh, Adam in the garden, Genesis 2, 16 through 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now it's not going through the words of a prophet. Now it's not going through tablets of stone. You have God talking to Adam and saying, Hey, Adam, you can... You can Eat anything else here. Just do not eat this tree. It's very, very simple. Very simple command. I actually uh, joked around and quoted this to my son Judah yesterday. He has a whole room full of toys, and what he keeps wanting to go up to is to play with daddy's watch and keys and wallet, which would normally be fine, but he'll walk off with it, and then I won't be able to go anywhere. And so he would come up, and he would start playing with it, and I'd say, son, this is the one tree I don't want you to eat from. This is the one thing I don't want you to play with. Play with anything else here in the room, but just not this, all right? And speaking to him directly as God speaks to Adam directly. Now look at this next one. This next one is very, these are all very exciting, but this one just, I think, hits us in a special way. G, or whatever number that is if you're keeping track, if you're keeping score. It's kind of like, have you ever seen Whose Line Is It Anyway? Where everything's made up and the points don't matter? That's kind of like my sectioning off of these things, okay? Another way God reveals himself is through Jesus, the Word of God. It's through Jesus, the Word of God. When you read that Jesus is God's Word, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, this kind of language used of Jesus, it's meant to evoke creation and that God created through His Word, that Jesus is the Creator God. It's meant to invoke ideas of God's, God's Word going forth, that God, His Word that He sends forth that doesn't return void, is Christ. All right? In Hebrews, when it talks about God's Word dividing like a sharp double-edged sword to the bones and marrow, it then says, and He... All right, talking about the word of God being Christ, that Christ is God's revelation of himself. Let me give you some passages. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's saying, in the past, God spoke through prophets a bunch of different times in different ways. This final revelation of God, if you will, is in the person of Jesus Christ, is in the person of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a few more. 
John 14, 9, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Not that Jesus is the Father. He's a distinct person from the Father. But he's saying, if you want to know what God is like, look at me. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Christ. Let me give you another one. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. All right, God is invisible. He's omnipresent. He's Trinitarian. I don't know what it would look like to see him. You can't see him. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, he has made him known. So here's what I'm saying. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. You want to know what God hates? Look at what Jesus hates. You want to know who God likes hanging out with? Look who Jesus likes hanging out with. You want to know who God gets mad at? Look at who Jesus gets mad at. You want to know the personality and care and kindness of God? Look at the personality and care of kindness of Jesus. You want to know the fierce wrath of God? Look at the fierce wrath of Jesus as he makes a whip and drives people out of the temple. You will know what God is like by looking at Jesus, that nobody has the Father unless they have the Son. If you have the Son, you have both. But if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. Jeff mentioned this in a sermon a few weeks ago, that this is why the whole idea of do Muslims and Christians and other people worship the same God? No. If you don't worship Jesus, you don't worship the same God. If your God is not Trinitarian, he's not the same God. Lastly, the one we're going to be talking about the most in this course specifically, God's Word being the Bible. All right? God's Word being the Bible. That that is where God has revealed himself. Let me give you a few passages. Psalm 19, 7 through 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God. The Greek word there is theopanoustos. It's God-breathed, God-spirited, all right? When out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, out of the overflow of God's heart, he speaks, all right? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That the way God reveals himself is in black and white. He has given us a book, all right? He has given us his word written down so that it can't just be messed up in our mind or we can't, uh, it's not like the telephone game when you're a kid and like you sit in a circle and somebody says some phrase and it goes around and by the other time it comes out, it's a completely different phrase that you can have it written down so that you have a record that you can look and see who God is and you can look and see what God has said and says. Now, let's ha- answer a few questions about God's word. Why is the Bible the primary thing we look at to see what God has revealed? Why is the Bible the primary thing that we look at to see who God is and what he's revealed? I just named a bunch of ways God reveals himself. According to the scriptures, he reveals himself in nature. He reveals himself in the person of Christ. Sometimes he talks to people directly. Sometimes he sends a prophet. So out of all these things, why are we focusing on and why are we spending our time in the Bible? And here's the answer. Ready? Because it's in the Bible that all those other things are included. It's in the Bible that all those other things are included. How do I know that God sometimes speaks through a prophet? Because the Bible says so. How do I know that Jesus is the Word of God? Because the Bible says so. So the reason that we're studying the Bible is it gives us something that contains all those other things I mentioned. Every other way I've said that God reveals himself, I've gotten from the Bible. So by studying the Bible, you get to learn all those other things as well. Additionally, by studying and mainly focusing on the Bible in this, it's objective instead of subjective. It's objective instead of subjective. What do I mean by that? If God were to come to you tonight in a dream... How would you know that that's God? How do you not know that it's not the devil? 
How do you not know that it's not your own mind? How do you not know that you just didn't have some bad Mexican food and then you go to bed and you have those weird vivid dreams like when you're sick and that's what it is? It's subjective. But in studying God's word, it's objective. It's objective. We have a standard to test those things. Additionally, the reason why the Bible is the primary thing we look at to see what God has revealed is it claims to be the standard of what God has said. God himself has said, this is my word. This is where you go to find me. To find me, you don't go to worldly philosophy. Worldly philosophy. To find me, you don't go to Catholic canon law. To find me, you don't go to the Book of Mormon. To find me, you don't go to speculation. To find me, you don't go meditate in a sweat hut and just try to have some sort of transcendental experience. To find me, you come to my word. Lastly, it is primarily the way that we know every other topic addressed in Scripture. We even have to go to Scripture to know what we should think about Scripture. All right? It is the standard where we go to learn about God and who He is. Okay? Next, how can God speak accurately if He's having to use human words? You ever thought about this? How can errant men write down an inerrant word? Are not humans fallible? Is our language not imperfect? How can this work? Well, the answer is that how can humans, fallible humans, produce an inerrant document? Well, the same way a fallible woman named Mary can produce an inerrant child, and it's through God's supervening process. It's through God's sovereignty that God, as these authors are writing, He is protecting and He is watching over His Word as it's written. And we'll talk more about that. Jeff will talk more about the Bible being inspired and authoritative. But you need to know that God can still use human language perfectly even though we can misuse it. All right? God can still use human language to adequately express what He wants to express, though we often make mistakes. We say things, even though we're humans and even though we have broken human language, we still say things that are true. Ready? Two plus two is four. My name is Zach. I exist. All bachelors are unmarried men. There's a bunch of absolute statements, all right? Those are true. God can do the same thing as well, but here's what you need to know as God uses uh, our language to speak to us. That God has written, had the Bible written in such a way to where we can understand it, but in a sense when he does so, he always condescends to us. John Calvin said that in God's word that God lisps to us as a mother does her child. You go try to explain yourself to a cockroach. Hey, cockroach, hey, stop running. I'm trying to talk to you. The difference between you and a cockroach and the difference between you and God is an infinite gap. So God has to condescend. He has to use our language. He has to uh, come down to our level, and he lisps to us as a mother does her child. But here's what's amazing about God. He can do so accurately. He can do so accurately. So just because human language is limited does not mean that God cannot use it to accurately and adequately express his word, okay? We'll talk more about that when we talk about hermeneutics and we talk about what are called anthropomorphisms, where God is described in human language, not because God looks like a human, except Christ, obviously, who became incarnate, but because God is trying to give us something that makes sense to us, okay? Okay, some other, everybody good, by the way? Let's all take a big breath. Okay, things are good, all right? We're having fun. We're learning about God's Word. Let's keep going. I know this is a lot of information, uh, but if you were here last semester, that's just how we do things. It's just a little bit overwhelming and scary. Okay, other things to know about God's Word. This next one's really, really important. You cannot separate who God is from His Word. You can't do that. 
that is a very, very, very popular thing right now in evangelicalism, to act like what it means to love God is to have all these squishy feelings and to have all these emotions and have this emotional high and stuff during worship, and none of those things are bad, but it starts getting divorced sometimes from God's Word. You cannot do that. I mean, I remember having conversations with people where they're afraid, where they say, well, I think you spend too much time studying and too much time in the Bible, whereas we need to spend more time worshiping, loving God. And I'm like, how is reading the Bible not worship? How is hearing God talk to us in the Bible not worship? Don't separate these two. You can't separate someone from their word. Let me give you an example. If I'm on a plane and I yell bomb, is that going to go well for me? It's not going to go well for me. They're going to escort me off in a very loving way with handcuffs. Now, I can't say as an excuse, I can't say, whoa, 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 I didn't say bomb. Those were just my words. My words said bomb. They're back there in the past. Those are my words. I'm over here. I didn't say bomb. Arrest my words. Will that work? Why? Because I am intimately linked to my words. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. When my words say bomb, I've said bomb. Okay? It's the same way with God. You cannot separate who he is from what he said. You can't just say, well, yeah, those are his words over here. He's intimately linked to those. Out of the overflow of his heart, if you will, his mouth speaks. You cannot separate the study of Scripture, the love of Scripture, these kind of things, from your worship and love of Christ. You cannot separate those. Do not separate the inscripturated and the incarnate word. Let me even give you some passages, just to freak you out a little bit, where the Bible itself praises God's word. Ready? Psalm 56.10, in God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise. Psalm 119, 162, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that you go home and you take your leather-bound Bible and you put it on the floor and you bow down to it. That's not what we're talking about at all. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. The only thing I'm trying to say is you cannot separate who God is as a person, or rather a trinity of persons, from what he has said. You only know him through what he has said. You also know him through the Spirit, you know him through these other ways, but even that you have to test according to the Bible to make sure that's the Spirit and these kind of things, okay? I'll give you a sentence that I've heard a lot in churches that I really hate. What sometimes I'll hear pastors say is they'll say, we worship the God of the Bible, we don't worship the Bible as God, okay? I agree. Again, we don't bow down to a book. The reason I don't like that saying, though, is how do you know who the God is of the Bible? Through the Bible. How do you know him? We just want to love Jesus. Which Jesus do you want to love? the Jesus of the Bible. You don't even know anything about this God apart from His Word, okay? That's how we know Him. I've also heard people say sometimes in charismatic circles, which I'm sensitive to. I'm not against that, but I'm against this phrase. They'll say, it's supposed to be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible, as if studying the Bible is somehow unspiritual, as if studying God's Word that's inspired by the Holy Spirit somehow doesn't honor the Spirit. What they're trying to do is they're trying to separate feelings and emotions and these kind of things from what God has actually said, and you can't do that. They go together. Let me tell you who really, really, really loves order and worship, the Spirit. How do I know? Because the Spirit himself has said that God is a God of order. You cannot separate God's Word from God. They go together. Again, I'm not talking about bowing down to a book. I'm talking about in our minds we don't need to separate. I think we have a tendency to think my relationship with God is over here, and here's a book, the Bible, and it helps me. It's, it's kind of a guidebook for life, and it helps me over here. You have to link these two together. The way you have this relationship with this God here is through hearing him speak in the Bible. It's through hearing him speak in the Bible. As it's been said, 
If you want to hear God speak, read the Bible. If you want to hear him speak audibly, read the Bible out loud, all right? (laughs) We speak to God. How? What is it called when we speak to God? Prayer. That's what prayer is. If you've ever wondered what prayer is, it's not this big, convoluted, complex, difficult thing. Jesus actually says, don't pray that way. Don't pray the way the Pharisees do, where they try to say all the right words and have a bunch of repetition like the pagans and these kind of things. But rather, you address God as Father. It's a conversation with God. If God was right here in the room, and he is, how would you talk to him? You would talk to him. Like, normally, you would talk to him. That's how we talk to God through prayer. How does he talk to us? Through his word. When you're studying the Bible, you're not doing a merely academic exercise. You're hearing God speak and talk to you. You're hearing God speak and talk to you. Let me me say it this way. If God were to come to you, and let's say somehow you could, I don't know, Christ came to you, let's say, and somehow you could see him, and he grabbed you by the face and said, I love you and I will not forsake you. That'd be really powerful. You'd probably be really encouraged by that. It's the same strength of that statement that God has said in his word. In fact, in his word, it's more reliable because that other thing could have just been a dream or it could have been your own mind or it could have been a trick or something else. When we read the Bible, that is God swearing to us. That is God promising us he does love us. He will not forsake us. Our sins have been forgiven. It carries the very stamp and promise of God. Okay. Let me move to the next section. In making sure that we don't separate God from his word, I want to mention some things here that what you think about the Bible shows what you really think about God. What you think about the Bible shows what you really think about God. Now, I'm going to mention a few of these questions that are a little convicting. Now, these questions are convicting for me. So we can all feel convicted together. It's not me throwing stones. We're all convicted because we all fall short in this. But as I ask these questions, you'll see one of two things. You'll see that there are areas in your life where you don't love God as much as you think you do. Or, and I think this is more likely the case, you'll see areas in your life where you have been separating your view of Scripture from your view of God. Okay? I'm convicted. As I was preparing these, I was like, man, I don't want to say these. I struggle with these. So let me read a few of these kind of questions. If what you think about the Bible reflects what you think about God, then what does it mean if there is a lack of study of the Bible? It means either that there is a lack of desire to spend time with God, or, again, what I think is probably more common is that you've just separated studying God's Word from loving Him. So I think there are a lot of people in here who really do love Jesus, but just don't realize that God's Word is not just this extra study book, but rather something that intimately links us to Christ. Okay? Number two, if what you think about the Bible reflects what you think about God, what does it mean to disobey the Bible? It means that we have directly disobeyed God. I've heard this a lot in dealing with church discipline cases and these kind of things where someone will come up and they'll say, I've got a relationship with God, I really am a Christian, but I'm just out of this marriage because it's not working, and there's not biblical grounds or anything for divorce, but I'm out of this marriage because it's not working, and uh, they're just okay with that. And I'll sit down and I'll say, you know what God's Word says about this. They're like, yeah, but, you know, there's some disagreement on that, and it's kind of a gray area, and so I'm out. And what they're doing is they're, they're, they're separating the obedience to the Scriptures from being obedience to God, whereas those are intimately connected. Those are intimately connected. If what you think about the Bible reflects what you think about God, what does it mean if you disbelieve the Bible? It means, again, (laughs) I'm convicted as I say this. You know why? Because I doubt God, and there are places where I disbelieve, and there are places where I disobey, and there are a lot of times where I'm not spending as much time in the Word as I should. So I'm convicted as well, but if we disbelieve something in the Bible, it means we're directly disobeying God. So here's the good news for you. Where the Bible says God loves you, you can just rest that you're loved. You don't have to worry about whether or not that's true. It's true. 
And where the Bible says that you're forgiven, you don't have to wrestle and wonder whether or not you're forgiven. It's true. You're forgiven. That you, in believing the Bible, are taking God at his word. Faith, really, is just simply where you stop calling God a liar. That's really what faith is. God says, I love you. I've forgiven you in Christ. Whoever believes on him will be saved. And faith is where you simply say, God, are you lying to me? No. Okay. That's faith. Faith is resting. Faith is not this, ju- this idea to kind of mentally conjure up more strong feelings or beliefs about something. It is resting in the promises of God to be still and know what he has said is true. Okay? If what you think about the Bible reflects what you think about God, what does it mean if you try to deflect the Bible by appealing to your experiences? This is very, very common. Where somebody who's married feels like they can't rebuked by, be rebuked by someone who's single because that person's not married. Where someone who's older feels like they can't be rebuked by someone who's younger because that person is younger. Or vice versa, where someone who's younger thinks they know it all and they can't be rebuked by someone who's older. I mean, we, people constantly try to get out of what the Bible says by appealing to their experience. Well, you don't know what it's like. You haven't had this issue. You don't struggle with this sin. Therefore, you can't tell me that this is wrong or sinful. No. Our hope, hear me on this, this is important. Our hope has nothing to do with our experience and everything to do with the truth of God's Word. God's Word is true whether you have that experience or not. God's true is whether you have the same experiences or not. We all, and we have to acknowledge that. If someone rebukes us, we can't say, well, you don't really know what I'm going through. We have to stop and say, is what they're saying biblical? Is what they're saying biblical? If what you think about the Bible is, uh, reflects what you think about God, what does it mean if you know, and I'm sorry, what does it mean if you assume that you know what a text means? What does it mean if you assume you know what a text means? It's to presume upon God. It's to come before God saying, I think I already know everything about you. You're no longer mysterious. I don't really have to study and question and ask if that's what the text means. Okay? Now, <clears throat> knowing the Bible is a way to better know God himself. Okay? Knowing the Bible is a way to better know God himself. Now, let me just be clear. It's not witchcraft. It's not a formula. It's not where you can just go and say, I'm going to read this in my Bible today, and therefore I'm going to feel better, and all these things are going to happen the way I want them to happen. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the more you know who God is in his word, the more you will grow in your love for him. How do I get to grow in my love for my wife? So we've been married almost seven years. I know for many of you that's just like nothing. You guys have been married, some of you, a long time. So I say seven years, and you're like, rookie, get off the stage. And so I know that's not very long. uh, But we've been married almost seven years. It'll be seven years in February. How do I grow in my relationship with her? Well, we have to sit down and we have to talk. We have to sit down and talk, and not just about Judah, not just about our days, but sit down and talk about real issues. How are you doing? How am I doing? What are you struggling with? What am I struggling with? Where am I failing as a husband? Is a difficult question to ask, but I have to ask it. We have these difficult conversations, but that's how we grow, and through that growth, we love each other more, we know each other more, even when there's rebuke, even when there's encouragement. It's through this conversation, when you read the Bible, you are having a conversation with God. I think if you realize when you sit down to study the scriptures and read the Bible, when you're sitting there, it's as if God is sitting across the table from you and you are having a conversation. He is speaking to you that intimately in his word. That's how closely he's speaking to you and I in his word. You cannot. It is how you know God better. Let me give you a few verses. John eight thirty one. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. John 14, 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. You, if you say, I really love Jesus, but you don't follow and obey his word, he says you don't really love him. 
That's what he says. That who loves me keeps my commands. You'll meet a lot of people that say they really love Jesus, and you look at them and they don't follow his commands, showing therefore they don't love him. That's a very common kind of thing to do. That if you love Jesus, you keep his commands. That those go together. In case you're hearing me beat a dead horse, let me just say what that dead horse is I'm trying to beat. We can't separate our love of God from our knowledge of the Scriptures. You cannot separate those. I really love Jesus. Which Jesus do you love? Do you love a Mormon Jesus who is the devil's brother, whose father is a man, who's a human from another planet, who has a polygamist kind of relationship with spirit wives? Is that the Jesus you love? Do you love a Jehovah's Witness Jesus who is actually the first thing that God created and rather just a creature but not the eternal Son of God? Do you love a Catholic Jesus who requires that in addition to faith to come before him, you do sacraments and all these works of Christian piety? Which Jesus do you love? You can't just say, I love Jesus. You have to love the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Jesus who says he loves certain things and hates other things, and the Jesus who is fully divine and fully human, the Jesus who dies on a cross for our sins, the Jesus who's resurrected, the Jesus who sends his servant Paul to give other commands to the church. That's the Jesus we have to love. We cannot separate these two things. Okay, one more thing I want to rant on, and then we'll have Jeff come up to say something good and edifying, okay? Um, There is a trend in evangelicalism, specifically in the United States, which is ever-pressing to separate head and heart, to separate head and heart. On the one end of the spectrum is you have the heart people. They say they really love Jesus, they're very emotional, the worship's very good as far as the music quality, uh, and it's very experience-based, very feelings-based. That's what's going on over here. On the other end of the spectrum is you have kind of the seminary student, which kind of has sometimes a uh, cold, dead orthodoxy, where they, uh, as Jesus would say to the Pharisees, you study the Scriptures in vain because you think in them you have life, whereas the Scriptures point to me. Those two groups need to come together. And they need to be friends, and they need to rub off on one another. You cannot separate head and heart. They go together. You cannot be ignorant to the glory of God, that our knowledge of God and our love of God have to go together. What we want is orthodoxy on fire. We want to have a truth of God's Word, but Spirit-inspired, Spirit-empowered, that these two things go together. The head and the heart are not meant to be separated. You're to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. They're meant to go together with your whole person. You're to love God, that you love God and your knowledge of God, they go together. The example that Jonathan Edwards used was that it's like a fire. You've got the fire, that's the work of the Spirit and your passion and your love for God, and then you've got the firewood, which is doctrine and theology and your knowledge of God's Word. You can have just a flash in the pan, just a a flame that pops up, but no substance, and it doesn't last. That's kind of the, uh, we joke that that's kind of the, sometimes can be the youth camp experience. You really love Christ, you're on fire, you're ready to die as a martyr and change the world for two weeks, and then it's over. Conversely, though, you can't just have firewood. If you just have firewood, does that produce a fire at all? It does not. It just sits in the corner and you become a Pharisee. That somehow these two must go together. But how do you make that fire hotter? So let's say you've got a fire, like we do this kind of with the men's camp out. You've got a fire. How do you get that fire bigger and hotter? You throw more firewood on. We've said this before that theology and your knowledge of God's Word is the ceiling to your worship. If you want to raise that ceiling... You have to know the God of the Bible is far more loving, far more interesting, far more gracious than the God of pop evangelical Christianity. That is a way that we love God more. You can't separate. I think we also do this in our culture. We separate the terms wisdom and knowledge. 
You ever seen that where somebody does that? We have a tendency to think wisdom is seeing things the way God sees them or having street smarts or knowing what to do in a particular situation. But knowledge is like book smarts. The Bible won't let you do that. The Bible makes you hold those two together. Constantly in God's word and where there's wisdom literature and Proverbs and these kind of things, it will tell you to seek wisdom and seek knowledge. Uh, When uh, King Solomon, he's the wisest man who ever lives. What are some of the things it says that Solomon knows a ton about? Biology, different kinds of animals, different kinds of plants, these kind of things. That's included in his gift of wisdom. That wisdom and knowledge go together. Why? Because you can't be wise if you don't know God's word. How could you give a good answer? How could you give a wise answer? You can't separate wisdom and knowledge. I'll tell you a story. There's a famous professor from Princeton Seminary who's a good guy, very much a guy who loves Christ and spent his life defending the truthfulness of the Bible, and his name is B.B. Warfield, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. That's a name, all right? If anybody's having kids, I recommend Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, and then whatever your last name is. Just give him multiple middle names. B.B. Warfield is a professor at Princeton. He's the fourth principal of Princeton Seminary and uh, Princeton Theological Seminary, and uh, he had a student one time that came up to him because he was known to be an academic. I mean, he's at Princeton Seminary. And a student came up as he was preparing a lesson and preparing to, to do some work, and the student said, Dr. Warfield, wouldn't it be more beneficial to spend 10 minutes in prayer instead of 10 hours over your books? And he responded, how about I spend 10 hours in prayer over my books? As if you could separate your love from God from the study of them, as if turning to God's Word makes you love God less, or as if turning to God uh, makes you love the Scriptures and study the Scriptures less. His whole point was, you've got a false dichotomy. It's not, do I spend a few minutes praying or do I spend a bunch of time studying? I pray, I study on my knees, if you will. I study God's word in a prayerful attitude. I'm talking to God as he's talking to me, that devotion, that head and heart go together with God's word. So I just want to encourage us all, and this is part of the reason we uh, want to have classes like this and these kind of things. We want to fight kind of this stream in evangelicalism that is kind of anti-intellectual, that acts like by studying God and thinking deeply, you somehow love Him less. No, the Bible's clear. That's how you, a way that you can grow in your love for God. It's a way that you can grow in your love for God. Lastly, and Jeff, if you want to go ahead and come on up here, um, I want us just to thank God and just relish what a gift we have in His Word. That we don't have to be like the pagan nations, sacrificing our children and doing all these crazy things because we don't know who God is or what He wants or what He's done. That in black and white, God has given us His Word, His promises. In black and white, God has told us who He is. In black and white, He has told us the gospel, that He has sent Christ to live the life we should have lived, to begin the kingdom of God, God's process to make the world right again, to die for our sins, to be raised, to send out His church as little military emissaries of the kingdom of God to transform the world for His glory. He's told us that in black and white. Whereas culture wrestles through certain ethical issues and social issues, just go online. The Bible gives us direction in a very confusing and difficult time. It's been said that every time a philosopher climbs a mountain, he finds a theologian already at the top. Meaning, for all the philosophizing and thinking through and trying to wrestle through what this means, by the time he gets to the top of that mountain and all that work, a theologian's there like, I already knew this because God's Word said it. All right? How thankful for we are for this gift that God's given us in his word that we have a God that we worship who reveals himself.